Hey, welcome back for episode three. Just wanted to take care of a couple quick notes before we get started in the episode. First of all, in this episode, I mentioned CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, and I completely butchered his last name, so I apologize for that. And also, as soon as I finished recording, I found out that Chelsea Manning had been released from prison, but she is due back in court to testify again on Thursday, May 16th, this upcoming Thursday, and she's not going to testify. They're going to put her right back in jail, but I did want to clarify that as we get into the episode. So with those things being said, let's get to the show. Welcome back to the Make America Dare It Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back. I can't believe we've made it to episode three. Uh, The show is growing like crazy. We have listeners from coast to coast all across the U.S. and actually in like three or four other different countries. So... Wherever you are listening from, I am so glad to have you back. If it is your first time here, I'm glad to have you. This is not your typical political podcast. Uh, What we try to do here is we try to look at the issues and we try to take a little bit more of a fair look of what's really going on and maybe the story behind the story. But one of the things that we also try to do is take an opportunity uh, a few times every show to point out what the media is doing, what these politicians are doing, the way that they are trying to market to you and trying to manipulate you and trying to guide you into thinking and doing and acting the way that they want you to act. And uh, as we learn to spot those things, hopefully it can help us to be a little bit more discerning and more capable of just looking at the facts and forming our own opinions. I don't expect you to agree with me on everything, and that's completely okay. I can live with that. But the most important thing to me is, is that we learn how to have these conversations and that we learn how to look at these issues objectively and to really try to figure out uh, what it means according to our principles. And on this show, we have three guiding principles. Everything we do is always going to fall back on those principles. The three principles are peace, property rights, and free markets. Whatever we do, you want to know where I stand on it. You can look back at those principles and say, is it peaceful? Is it respecting someone's property? And is allowing them, is it allowing them to spend money the way they want and, and not manipulating their money or their currency in any way? So last episode, we talked about the civil war in Yemen and the United States' involvement in that war. And I got a lot of awesome feedback on it. I was so glad to hear that so many of you liked it and that so many of you found it um, easy to understand. And I think I said it in that episode too, foreign policy is something that it can be so complicated that people just want to ignore it. They say, oh, I don't understand that. I'll just leave it to somebody else. Well, I don't want you to leave it to somebody else. I want, I want to help you understand these things and you can look at them. And again, just decide for yourself. You're going to get my take on it, but I'm also going to do my best to help you understand um, everything that's led up to a lot of these issues and everything that's really surrounding them and what they really mean because so many times the mainstream media is just focused on pushing their narrative and just trying to get you to think and vote and feel the way that they want you to. And 
we miss the truth a lot of the time. Now, in last week's episode, I had to cut out the segment that I did on Ilhan Omar, the uh, representative from Minnesota, and I was going to just go ahead and use it first in this episode, and then I got to digging into this other topic, and I thought, man, uh, we're not going to be able to fit it all in. So, Ilhan has been bumped back uh, yet another week. That's okay because a lot of the drama surrounding her is just continuing and that's going to stay relevant. So whether I re-record it or just post that later, I still think you're going to get a lot out of that. But I felt that this was a little bit more pressing that we talk about Julian Assange this week and that we talk about his work in WikiLeaks and his uh, legal troubles that he's run into and our country's involvement in the way that all of this has gone down. So, let's get to it. Let's talk about Julian Assange. As I'm sure you've heard, uh, he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, in the UK, and he's been there for several years. But finally, on April 11th, Ecuador revoked Julian Assange's access to the embassy and they said he was no longer allowed to be there. The London police came in, and they just took him off to jail in England, and that was that. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of questions about what's going to happen next. As of right now, no one knows for sure. But how did we get here? Well, let's run through the history uh, that Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, the connection to this, all of this as well. Back in 2006, WikiLeaks was founded. And essentially, they just aimed to be a place where people could drop off documents and hand things over to them, and they would be a safe place to make those documents available for the world to see. Some of these documents come from governments. Some of these documents come from private companies. Some of these are emails. Just anything and everything that they can get just aimed to be a platform where those types of things can be distributed and hopefully they are a safe place for people to put those things out. So in 2007, they released a U.S. Army manual on how to deal with prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. 2008, they had a bunch of documents they released from the Church of Scientology, and also in 2008, they released a bunch of emails from Sarah Palin's Yahoo account. She was running for vice president at the time. Uh, That was her personal email. In 2010... This is where Chelsea Manning comes in. Uh, In 2010, they released a video of a U.S. Apache helicopter killing two journalists and some uh, Iraqi civilians in the city of Baghdad. The same year, they released 90,000 documents from the Afghanistan war detailing the hunt for Osama bin Laden and a lot of the civilian deaths that stemmed from the U.S. involvement there. Both of those things came from Chelsea Manning. There were also... Uh, A lot of cables that were released from uh, different embassies that were involved with the U.S. and that kind of thing. Needless to say, there was a lot there. Tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of documents coming from Chelsea Manning. And obviously the U.S. government is no fan of this at all. Now about this time, just as WikiLeaks is really starting to heat up and Assange is really starting to be seen as a kind of a dangerous figure to these governments and corporations all over the world... He gets accused of rape in Sweden. Now, the timing of these was rather convenient. You know, the, it seemed as if they just really wanted a reason to put him away. So he's accused of rape 
And they put out a warrant for his arrest, and then the police department rescinds that warrant the next day. They pull it back in, and they say that they don't have enough evidence, they're, they're not sure that the charges are real, and if they are, uh, there's not nearly enough evidence to convict him. And again, it really didn't look as if he had actually done anything, but um, someone needed a reason to try to go after him and to try to rein him in a little bit. Uh, a few months later... They reopened the case with lesser charges, uh, charges that weren't as uh, harsh, weren't as violent, whatever. Um, it gets hung up in the system for a while, and finally he's arrested in London so he can be extradited back to Sweden to face charges. Uh, while he's in London, he gets out on bail, and the courts allow him to file an appeal. So he is out on bail in England. They want him to be extradited back to Sweden, but instead, he goes into the Ecuadorian embassy there within England, but again, they, they can't touch him. So he seeks asylum there. The Ecuadorian government uh, agreed to protect him and, and house him there, and nobody in London can touch him. Nobody in Sweden can get to him. He is he's safe, but he's there uh, almost in solitary confinement, really, you know, and, and eventually they took his computer access away and all kinds of stuff, so he didn't have a lot of contact with the outside world. In 2015, the statute of limitations ran out for the sexual molestation and coercion crimes. However, the, quote, suspicion of rape, unquote, charges can remain open until 2020. So his goal, obviously, is to was to at least hopefully stay in the embassy until either this thing is dropped or until 2020 when they can't go after him for this anymore. Fast forward a little bit. July 2016, WikiLeaks released 2,000 hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Convention. They also had 50,000 emails belonging to the DNC chair, John Podesta. These emails, as they, they come out and people start to go through them, they see that they showed uh, Hillary Clinton had a lot of control over the Democratic Party and, and her people were really calling the shots uh, at a time when they were still supposed to be in the primaries and they were still supposed to be seeing who was actually going to be the Democratic nominee. And instead, we see that they were basically running it as if Hillary Clinton had already won and they kind of cheated Bernie Sanders out of uh, his shot at the primaries. You know, he polled really well with young people. Um, he could appeal to a lot of liberals who were really fed up with kind of the status quo, old school, uh, old guard. Democrat Party. Now, the Democrats started claiming pretty quickly that Russia gave the information to WikiLeaks so that they could help Donald Trump win that election. Um, but Julian Assange claims that the emails did not come from Russia. Um, something interesting to point out here, um, there's a guy named John Kiraku, and uh, he noted that when they looked over the speed that the files were uploaded, that all of these emails were, were uploaded, he said it was way too fast to be done remotely. Um, it had to have come from someone who had direct physical access to those files, and they loaded them onto a thumb drive. So had they accessed them from Russia they wouldn't have been able to download them so fast. It would have taken time as they move through different servers and they move through VPNs and all of this stuff. It's going to cause that stuff to get slowed down. And what it would appear to be is that someone was there in the building who was able to actually just stick a thumb drive in there. And it, and it may have been somebody who was upset about the way that, that Bernie had been cheated there. And remember, at this time, Julian Assange is 
almost being held as a kind of like a political prisoner in Ecuador. He, he can't go anywhere else. Uh, but WikiLeaks, their work continues. March 2017, they released thousands of CIA documents that show them spying on our cell phones, our smart TVs, the computers in your car, uh, all kinds of that stuff. And, you know, that upset a lot of people and that that hurt a lot of people's trust in their government to know that they were being spied on without warrants. And that a lot of times they were being spied on without reason. And most people can pretty well wrap their head around, yeah, if I'm suspected of a crime, of course, they're going to go through my stuff and try to see whether or not I've done this crime. But to find out that they're just going through your cell phone records and going through emails and and possibly listening to you on smart devices just because they want to do it, um, that's pretty unsettling. And it it rattles the citizenship and it rattles the government as well. So also in 2017, Ecuador changes presidents and the new president isn't nearly as sympathetic to Julian Assange as the previous president was. From this point on, Ecuador really starts to clamp down on Assange and accuses him of all kinds of wrongdoing. They accuse him of hacking. They say he's being unruly and that he's rude to the staff. Uh, They claimed at one point that he smeared feces on the walls and that his room was absolutely filthy. But when they posted pictures of this, there was like one dirty dish laying out on the counter or on the table and everything else was fine. So it starts to seem fishy. But again, when you're this type of figure and those kind of people start really closing down on you, accusations are going to be made and and they may not always be true. Um, But it starts becoming very clear that Julian Assange's time in Ecuador is quickly running out, I should say in the Ecuadorian embassy, and uh, the U.S. is just, they're licking their chops ready to get him. He has really caused a lot of stress to the U.S. powers with all of these CIA documents and all of these embassy cables, and they've pointed out, you know, wrongs that our military has done and civilians that we've hurt in battle, and they want to get him extradited to the U.S. so that they can hit him with charges. And so the charges that we're immediately talking about are hacking charges because he got all of that classified material from Chelsea Manning. Now, the U.S. claims that he helped Chelsea Manning hack these passwords and that he did a lot of the grunt work. But my understanding is that the reality is he simply received the documents and he asked her if she could get him more. And what the U.S. is trying to claim is that by asking for more, he was not just a recipient of these files, he was an accomplice to getting those files. Now, Let's step back from Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for just a second. The International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, they're basically the Federal Reserve Bank of the entire world. Um, They set the interest rates for loans, they decide what countries need economic stimulus, all, all of the stuff that on this podcast we believe goes against the concept of free markets. And we'll probably go into that stuff a little bit more another day. But essentially, if the markets are free, um, interest rates and who gets stimulus and all of this stuff really happens, it happens completely naturally. You don't need anybody telling the money where to go because people try to be smart with their own money and they try to spend money where they feel it will be of the best use. You know, they're going to buy the things that they want to buy. They're going to invest in businesses that they believe are safe and when you you take an outside entity like this and you start pointing 
what direction to go and what where money needs to be spent and controlling interest rates, then what that does is it causes bigger booms and bigger busts that in the long run are a lot more harmful to all of us because it's great when it works, but it causes the failures and the, the recessions to be so much worse that, you know, it really hurts a lot of people too. So the IMF, the United States is the biggest shareholder in this by a long shot. The U.S. has 17% of the voting power, and the next closest countries are China, Japan, and Germany. They're all down around 6% each. So, in the IMF, the U.S. has three times as much power as anybody else, and just coincidence, I'm sure, the IMF happens to be based out of Washington, D.C. So, Ecuador is in some money trouble. They're a little cash-strapped. They've paid back one bond in the past two centuries. Obviously not the kind of people that we would typically want to lend to. Um, Right now, oil prices are down, which has really put the hurt on them even more than usual. They obviously could use some help, but nobody in their right mind is going to loan money to a country that, that is this broke, right? Well... Uh, around February, March of this year, 2019, the IMF, which again is led by the U.S., they secured a loan for Ecuador for $4.2 billion, and they got the World Bank and a few other uh, big banks around the world to chip in and pitch in another $6 billion. So Ecuador will be receiving $10 billion of stimulus thanks to the generous bankers in Washington, D.C., In a move that is completely unrelated to this, I'm sure, rumblings start to surface that Ecuador, who has a shiny new $10 billion bill in their back pocket, they're finally fed up with Julian Assange, and they're ready to kick him out of the embassy. Now, around the same time, in March, Chelsea Manning was brought back to court to testify against WikiLeaks, and she refused. Because she refused to testify, they held her in contempt of court, which means she's thrown in jail, and she can be there for up to 18 months, and then at the end of that 18 months, they can renew it or extend it, and it can go another 18 months after that. So potentially, she's looking at three years in jail just because she doesn't want to testify uh, against WikiLeaks for the work that she did with them. And they are holding her in solitary confinement for a lot of that, which is... It's just not, it, it, it's really a form of torture. It's not good for people and it really breaks them down mentally. At the same time, you know, it seems like that's what they want, hoping that they can get her to talk. And then finally, April 11th, all of this comes to fruition and Julian Assange is kicked out of the Ecuadorian embassy as London police drag him out and take him to jail, where he has since been sentenced to 50 weeks for evading bail. He may only have to serve half of that before he's eligible for parole, but the judge made it very clear that the circumstances and restrictions for his release have yet to be determined. So she knew that this case is much bigger than just her and much bigger than just evading bail, and um, she was not about to make any kind of commitments as to what's going to happen when he gets out of there. So we're looking at 25 weeks, maybe up to 50, and then... Everybody's going to be fighting to, to get a hold of Julian Assange again. So what does all of this mean? Most importantly, 
Julian Assange and his work through WikiLeaks represent a massive threat to plenty of governments and people in all kinds of positions of power. Now, Washington Post has a, a pretty cool slogan, and it's democracy dies in darkness. And their slogan implies, correctly, that the citizens need to know what their government is doing so that they can keep that government in check. I've said this about Congress. I've said this about the way that you vote. And I'm saying this about the press and the government as well. Gridlock is a good thing. Opposition is a good thing. When people are pushing against each other and when people are standing on different sides of the issue, it forces us to look for more perspective. It forces us to really try to figure out why we think that we're right and to maybe consider why they think that they're right. And we can weigh these sides out and and hopefully over time, slowly but surely, you may get some progress on this issue. But when something happens as a knee-jerk reaction and one party just pushes over on another party, a lot of times that's when bad decisions get made because people are so focused in just beating the other side or just making sure that their issue wins that there's not enough time for people as a whole and for the system as a whole to genuinely shift to something that they can all agree on. Um, Our founding fathers intended for the press and the government to be at odds with one another. That was the way that it was supposed to be. The government and press were not supposed to be friends. You know, it's natural when you are the ones in power, when you are in a position of power, to to want to do whatever you want to do. And the point of the press is to make sure that the people are informed about what the government is doing and so that they can use their votes and their power as citizens to put a stop to it if it's something that they did not want you, their public servants, doing. But over the years, the government and the mainstream media, they've gotten really cozy together and they've worked as a team instead. There's a book called Stonewalled by Cheryl Ackeson, and that goes into a lot of detail about this if you're interested I'll try to remember to link that to Amazon in the show notes if you want to look up that book and check that out. But it talks about the cooperation between certain news agencies and the White House and how in all kinds of different administrations, they start to give each other special privileges and they start to work together. But there's got to be a little bit of quid pro quo, right? There's got to be a little bit of, well, we'll give you an exclusive interview if you're quiet about this certain issue. Those kind of things happen. At its core, though, journalism is made up of reporters who gather information from various sources, and they put this information together to try to get the truth out to the public. Now, we talk a lot on this podcast about how the mainstream media has become very narrative-driven and and often dishonest, but that doesn't change the definition of what journalism is and what it should be. Just because CNN sucks and just because Fox News sucks doesn't mean that There's no good journalism out there, right? It doesn't mean that we can't get the truth about things. It just means that we need to dig a little bit harder. And of course, they don't want you to do that. So one of the things that journalists rely on are leaks. Those are a big part of journalism. And kind of like I mentioned a second ago, the Obama White House would often leak stories in the New York Times on purpose so that they could get certain information out there and they could influence the narrative and give themselves a little bit more momentum when they needed it. And that's not uncommon for any administration. Uh, you know, I know I say that every podcast, but so many of these people are the same. 
whether they're Republican or Democrat, they use a lot of the same tactics and they do things the same way. But when we're talking about WikiLeaks, you might hear a lot of these pundits bring up the question, is Julian Assange really a journalist? Is he really afforded the same rights as other news outlets under freedom of the press? Chris Ann Hall, she is an excellent resource when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. You can go to her website. You can listen to her podcast if you want to. She knows more about the Constitution than uh, anybody I know of. And she is a resource that I always look to if I have any kind of questions about whether or not something is constitutional. She spends a lot of time looking into what our founders intended and, and the history behind the Constitution and why it was written the way it was. Now, she points out that the First Amendment never says that freedom of press is only for journalists. It's not just for the mainstream media. Freedom of speech, freedom of press applies to any person who wants to put any information out there. It doesn't matter if your words are controversial. It doesn't even matter if they're wrong. As long as they're not threatening or libelous, they are protected speech and you are not to be put in jail for those words. So again, it doesn't matter whether or not you think that Julian Assange is a journalist. What matters is that WikiLeaks is releasing material that has been given to them and they have not been proven wrong in anything they've released yet. They have not given up a single one of their sources either, which obviously drives a lot of these people crazy. But nobody has proven any of the documents to be false. Now, Anytime you press these people about it, saw it happen a lot to Hillary and her people during the 2016 election after those emails leaked, they'll tell you that the documents are illegitimate or that they are illegal or that they came from the Russians, but the truth has gone unchallenged. All they want to do is tell you not to read them or not to waste your time with them, but they know good and well that they can't tell you that they're lies. And that right there, that is the real reason that WikiLeaks is such a threat. That is why Julian Assange has to pay for his crimes of truth. Now, Christine Hall, she offered a theory in one of her shows that I, I really liked and, um, She's not necessarily claiming that this is true. She's just, she's just speculating. She said a lot of the crimes detailed in these leaks were committed under the Obama administration. Uh, it was you know, Obama's Department of Defense, Obama's uh, military, Obama's Department of Justice, his CIA, whatever. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that Barack Obama was in on every single one of these scandals and every one of these documents, but it happened on his watch, and so that doesn't look good on him. If the Obama administration were to charge Julian Assange with his crimes and try him in a court of law, it is very likely that more evidence from WikiLeaks would have been brought to light, and there may be more stains added to Obama's Justice Department, military, intelligence agencies, all of that. More of that could have been brought onto his reputation. On top of that, nobody has any idea what kind of dirt WikiLeaks could release if anything were to happen to Julian Assange. They seem to have dirt on everybody, so everybody in power, whether you're Republican, Democrat, whatever, this is a concern that's going to remain in the back of their minds. And so they've got to tread carefully here because you don't want more dirt on you being released if you can help it. So, maybe... 
Chris Ann Hall speculates, maybe Obama and his people just decide to kind of let it go. Um, let's leave Assange kind of locked up in an embassy somewhere. We'll just finish our term and hope that everything else stays quiet and we can get out of this without any more drama. Basically, we'll put Assange out of sight, out of mind. On top of that, a lot of this centered around Chelsea Manning, and while all of this stuff is going on, she's transitioning from a man to a woman. And with Obama being very progressive and the LGBT stuff was something that he really campaigned on hard and, and really leaned on as part of uh, his presidency, I think maybe he was a little bit afraid that if he went after a transgender woman too hard, his base would be upset. So they decided it's best just to let it go. But now, Chris Ann Hall's theory continues, Barack Obama's gone and he's probably pretty safe from all of this. You know, again, out of sight, out of mind, his presidency's over. But Donald Trump is dealing with this Russian scandal and even though there's not much evidence there, the media is not letting it go away. So, perhaps the best thing that can happen to Trump is that we let a lot of this information get out there. Maybe if we bring Assange to trial, we can prove in court that the Russians had nothing to do with the WikiLeaks, or with Donald Trump's campaign. So Trump's name could be further cleared from Russian interference and he gets to put Assange away and show everybody how tough he is on anybody who puts the U.S. in a bad light. Again, this whole thing is just, that's just a theory, and I didn't come up with it. It's Chris Ann Hall's, but I do think, you know, it checks out, and it's definitely something worth considering. So, at the time we're recording now, Julian Assange is serving his 50-week sentence in the U.K., and upon his release... Switzerland wants him extradited to Switzerland on those suspicion of rape charges, and the U.S. is trying to get him extradited to the U.S. to face those charges for allegedly helping Chelsea Manning. At this time, the U.S. is only talking about those particular charges. The death penalty has come up in conversation a little bit, but the U.K. has a really strict policy where they will not extradite anyone if they're looking at the death penalty in the other country. So the U.S. is going to be sure to focus on a relatively minor charge of hacking or whatever that comes with a five-year jail sentence. And once they have him safely in their custody on U.S. soil, that's when they're going to start coming up with all the other charges. That's when they're going to be able to throw the book at him and find everything that he's ever done and possibly more. Now, again, the things he's accused of doing amounts to fairly little. You can kind of look through. There's like a 40-page deposition on him if you want to look through it. And they talk about a lot of the, the distributing of the information and that, that he's received this information and all of that stuff. But those things on their own aren't illegal. Leaks happen every day. Journalism is centered around leaks. And you can see on the news constantly what people are saying from within Google or what people are saying who work for Facebook and complaining about how bad it is to work for Amazon or whatever. Those are leaks and those things are completely acceptable. And again, that's what reporters are supposed to do. And the truth is, if they had released leaks from Microsoft or Nike or Google or Amazon, nobody would bat an eye. In fact, he would have been praised for keeping those corporate cronies in check. But, unfortunately for him, he crossed the most powerful people in the world. And, believe it or not, it doesn't even matter if he's done anything wrong. Joseph Stalin's right-hand man, I think his last name was Berea, he was famous for saying, show me the man 
and I'll show you the crime. When you're dealing with these kind of organizations, that couldn't be more true. If they want to put you away for something, they will find a reason to put you away. Uh, They'll interrogate you for hours and hours, days upon days, weeks upon weeks, and the very first time that you misspeak or you remember something that you didn't tell them last time, bam, they've got you. You've lied, and now you're going to jail. They tried to get Martha Stewart for insider trading, um, but the evidence wasn't there. But since they had already made up their minds that they were going to get her, they got her for obstruction and lying. They'll ask you the same question a hundred times, and you know you you slip up and you answer it a little bit differently one time. That's it. You're done. You look at the same thing now. They wanted to get Donald Trump for Russian collusion, so they spent two years running this investigation that started at collusion with Russia, and when that didn't work, they moved on to obstruction of justice, and when they couldn't find anything there, it went into the personal lives of everybody who worked closely with Trump and with his campaign. If you look at all of those arrests that have come from the Mueller report and have come from this investigation into Russian collusion... Not a single one of those arrests has anything to do with collusion. They'll get you for not registering right as a diplomat, whether you made a paperwork error. They'll get you for real estate issues. They'll get you for campaign finance issues where, where you may have accidentally paid off a stripper with the wrong money out of the wrong account or something like that. But none of that stuff is Russia. Russia is lost in all of this. But because Trump's a threat and because he's kind of a wild gun and you never have any idea what he's going to do next, they want to make sure that they can keep him in check and that they can keep him under control. And, you know, if they need to get rid of him, that they've got a way to do it. That's also why Trump refused to testify under oath. uh, And he had said at the very most that he would give them a written statement because he didn't want to open himself up to impeachment or possible jail time because he accidentally you know, gave him a wrong date or he forgets to list one person that was in a meeting of 20 people or whatever. So that was why he wanted to be super careful with that. And, and of course, everyone's going to say, well, if you don't, if you didn't do anything wrong, you don't have anything to hide. Well, tell that to Martha Stewart. And this very same thing can happen with Julian Assange. Look, even if we say that those rape charges are true, I don't think they are. It sounds ridiculous to me, but let's entertain that idea for a minute. What do you do with every other person who commits rape? You throw them in jail for eight years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, and maybe they have to register as a sex offender for the rest of their life. I'm not trying to downplay the action. You know, I'm not trying to downplay rape, but at least with that, there's some kind of path, a clear path for how justice is served there. The same goes if he really did hack some passwords. You give him a big fine, maybe you force him to do a bunch of community service, and then you probably bribe him to come and work for the CIA or FBI or NSA, right? But that's not what Assange has done. Assange has shaken the people's trust in their governments, and it has to be made clear that this will not be tolerated. But maybe they don't even have to throw the book at him. Maybe he doesn't have to spend decades in jail. Maybe, just maybe, they could do something even worse. We're going to look at an article called Pray and Weep by Karen Kwiatkowski. Let's pick it up around the 10th paragraph here. Furthermore, U.S. government employees from the Department of Defense, FBI, and CIA have been interviewing Assange in Belmarsh Prison 
prior to any extradition decision. Interviewing here is really the wrong word. I'd like to say doctoring him because it would be more accurate, except that word implies some care for a positive outcome. Chemical Gina has her hands in this one, and we're being told, okay, when they say Chemical Gina, they're talking about Gina Haspel. Uh, She is the director of the CIA, and Trump chose her because she's a big fan of torturing prisoners, and she's participated in that torture herself. Okay, that's why they're calling her Chemical Gina here. She has her hands in this one, and we're being told that Assange is being treated, quote-unquote, with three quinaclinicodil benzylate, known as BZ. What BZ does from the New Yorker, and they link to another article here, and I'm going to read this. Exposed soldiers exhibited bizarre symptoms, rapid mumbling or picking obsessively at bedclothes and other objects, real or imaginary. The drug's effect lasted for days. At its peak, volunteers were totally cut off in their own minds, jolting from one fragmented existence to the next. They saw visions. Baseball players competing on a tabletop diamond, animals or people or objects that materialized and then vanished. Soldiers on the drug BZ could remember only fragments of the experience afterward. As the drug wore off and the subjects had trouble discerning what was real, many experienced anxiety, aggression, and even terror. Dr. Ketchum, who was over all of this, built padded cells to prevent injuries, but at times the subjects couldn't be contained. One escaped running from imaginary murderers. Another, on a drug similar to BZ, saw bugs, worms, one snake, a monkey, and numerous rats, and thought their skin was covered in blood. One subject broke a wooden chair and smashed a hole in the wall after tearing down a 4 by 7 foot panel of padding. Dr. Ketchum and three assistants piled on top of this soldier to subdue him. He was clearly terrified and convinced we were intending to kill him, the chart said. One night, Dr. Ketchum rushed into a padded room to reassure a young African-American volunteer wrestling with the ebbing effects of BZ. The soldier, agitated, found the air conditioner gravely threatening. After calming him down, Dr. Ketchum sat beside him. Attempting to see if he could hold a conversation, Dr. Ketchum asked, Why do they have taxes, income taxes, things like that? The soldier thought for a minute. You see, that would be difficult for me to answer because I don't like rice, he said. This is the treatment Julian Assange is getting from our government, and he's not even in our custody yet. One of the other patients that had been experimented on with with his drug, BZ, the guy said he was sitting there thinking about how he'd really like to have a cigarette right now. And so he looked in his hand, and a cigarette magically appeared in his hand. And he sat there, and he smoked the cigarette, and he remembers smoking the cigarette. And when he was almost done with it, it just disappeared. Another one of the guys they were experimenting on was telling them that the the Dr. Ketchum asked him if he felt safe where he was. And the guy said, no, you know, anywhere else I can, I can run free and I feel like I can defend myself. But here there's nothing to keep somebody just from shoving me right down those stairs to my death. And when he's pointing at those stairs, he's pointing at a, a flat floor where there are no stairs. Now this is the treatment that Julian Assange is getting from our government. And he's not even in their custody yet. And you know what? If they can force feed him drugs and cause him to lose his mind, maybe that's a fate even better than prison. They can write off everything he's ever said or done. 
They can literally attack his credibility from the inside out. I mean, the guy's obviously gone mad. Are you going to believe him? Are you really going to trust leaked top secret information from a guy who maybe can't even talk about taxes because he doesn't like rice? So we know this is happening, but how is Assange holding up after this intense interrogation and being drugged with BZ? Let's look back at this article. She says, allow me to get to the point. The latest word I have received from England is as follows. Julian Assange is presently under close observation in prison hospital because he has suffered severe transient psychotic episodes. My sources indicate these episodes occurred after two sessions of coercive interrogation at the hands of UK and US officials. The sources stated the interrogators used psychotropic drugs in the course of the sessions. That may be it. This whole thing may be over before it starts. Kwiatkowski wrote that Chelsea Manning's mind has already deteriorated after spending so much time in solitary confinement over the years, and she believes that Chelsea is no longer mentally strong enough to even put up a fight when it comes to this. And now, it looks like the CIA might get what they want. With a little luck, and perhaps some help from the drugs, Julian Assange can finally be silenced before he even gets to testify at his own trial. Hey, Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing it with your friends. And uh, I also want to give a big shout out to my friend Mike who found this article for me. He finds all kinds of cool stuff and passes it on. If you want to follow him on Twitter, his handle is don't statist on me, all one word. And uh, he's super resourceful and always finding all kinds of cool articles, podcasts, everything like that. If you want to talk to me, you can reach out to me on twitter.com slash Garrett again facebook.com slash Garrett again or Garrett again at pm.me and as always Garrett has just one R in it right now we're trying to release an episode every other Monday so thank you so much for listening to this one and I can't wait for you to tune in for the next one until then stay kind stay vigilant stay free get out of here